I should start off by saying, uh, hi, I'm Max, and I'm a coffee addict. Five years ago, five years ago, I was drinking 12 to 18 cups of coffee a day. Oh, that's a lot of judgment. Thank you very much. I thought this was a judgment-free zone in the Holy Ghost. <laughs> so yes, for those of you good at math, that is a pot to a pot and a half of coffee a day. Now, one of the things that happens when you drink that much coffee is that you get sweaty armpits. You do. And I was first confronted with that fact when someone had snapped a picture of me with my hands up in full Pentecostal fashion wearing a light gray shirt. And there they were, my two scarlet letter stains in my armpits. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. It wasn't until a leadership Jessamine County day in Frankfurt you were there that day. I don't know if you picked up on what was going on, Brandy. So I, this day happens in February. February is cold. And on this particular day, um, uh, it was snowing. And so you go to Frankfurt, you meet the governor, you meet your legislative delegation, you meet a lot of important people. And by 10 o'clock in the morning, I had sweated through my t-shirt. I had sweated through my dress shirt and I had soaked the lining of my suit. Ew, can we all just, ew. You do not want to shake the hand of the sweaty man, okay? And so for the rest of the day, I was panically, I, I had my arms crossed. I would walk like this, right? I was scared to death. So that was my tipping point moment. I didn't need an intervention. I knew I need to throttle my coffee intake. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and so over the course of a year, I went from 18 cups to just a pot. And then from a pot, I went to eight cups and then uh, six cups. And now I have a little teeny tiny four cup coffee maker <laughs> and I have a mug and a half of coffee in the morning and that's it. Now, I'd, it took an entire six months after that for the sweaty, sweaty pits to go away. But I'm going to tell you right now that caffeine addiction, caffeine addiction alters your brain, okay? Because you're always, whoo, and when you go off something that you're addicted to, you go through what's called withdrawal. I would experience on any morning where I wasn't able to get my coffee, you know, the full pot and a half, the I would feel a little tired and like I was dragging around. And then the headache from beyond would hit right here in the front, you know, that kind of headache. Sometimes people can get nausea. I never had that. But so caffeine, caffeine addiction has a, a, a chemical makeup and a chemical component to it. You may not know this, but caffeine withdrawal in 2013 was listed as a mental disorder. It's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Some of you are like, great, I'm going to tell my employer Tuesday I have a disability and I need to be accommodated with more coffee. <laughs> okay, right? Here's the thing. Addiction always starts with something that feels good to us. It, it, for me and for coffee, it was that rush of energy. But any addiction starts off because it feels good. Um, 
people will get hooked on drugs because they have a surgical procedure and then they're given pain medication and they're the kind of body type where that pain medication gives them this buzz, this amazing feeling. And from there, because it feels so good, they want more. Alcohol, the same way. I'm told the first time that you're a little bit drunk, there's a bit of this buzz and it feels good. It, there's a good feeling to it. Um, sex and porn, the th same thing. The first time, it's, there's this feeling that comes with it. Um, believe it or not, social media. Uh, we now know that when pe lots of people like your posts, your brain secretes the chemical in the body that it does for every other addictive behavior. And by the way, the people who make our smartphones and who produce the apps know this. They know this, okay? Social media, uh, sugar. Sugar is, I've struggled with sugar at points in my life where, you know, Joe Bill and I both are like, I need some more lemonade, quick. You know, I need some sugar in my bloodstream. Again, it's, you get this buzz that comes with it. Gambling, okay? So here's what happens. Your brain, when you do something that feels good, it releases dopamine. And dopamine is this chemical that makes us feel good. Now, dopamine is usually released to reinforce healthy lifestyle things like eating, exercise, sex, uh, fellowship with other people. But when uh, you are using some drugs and engaging in some behaviors, really all addictions, that our brain gets hijacked and it causes uh, dopamine to be released in higher amounts. In fact, when you're abusing something, when you become addicted to something, your brain releases two to 10 times the amount of dopamine. So when I was, when I had that chain around me called coffee, right? My brain was going and which is why, by the way, this is why we get hooked in addiction. Your brain is releasing this chemical in your body that's telling you this is good, this is good, and it's releasing it in large amounts. And so we get hooked. I don't know if you know this, but the Latin word for addiction literally means to be bound to or to be handed over. And that's exactly what addiction does. Gang, Jesus did not come so that we could be handed over. Jesus did not come so that we would be bound to something. He came to set us free. And that's my bottom line today. God is with us and God can set us free. If you brought a paper Bible, we're going to be in the book of Galatians. And I want to talk a little bit about what this means, okay? In in Galatians, Paul writes this letter to this group of Christians in the first century, a group of Christians who had been freed from legalism. They had been freed from God's judgment on sin. They had been freed from any and all man-made rules. And they had been freed from fear and guilt, the kind of fear and guilt that comes from having to live up to all these rules all the time. They had been freed from all of that. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. And don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. This group of Christians that Paul is writing to had had a relationship with God that had been defined by a settled confidence and trust that what Jesus Christ had done was enough. And it produced in them joy and it produced in them freedom. 
But now these same people were doing a bunch of rules and following a bunch of rules because they thought if they do Jesus plus all of these rules that that would make God extra happy and God would be so pleased with them. And the result is that instead of being free, instead of feeling joy, they were feeling condemned and frustrated, which is what happens under that kind of mantle. Now, in this section of Paul's letter, he's calling this group of Christians to freedom. And, he, and, and it's a freedom that doesn't come from performance. It doesn't come from what you're doing. It comes from living under the power of God's spirit. All right? And so we're gonna skip ahead to verse 16. Paul says this, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful neighbor craves. In the preceding verses, he was talking about love. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. The whole law can be summed up in one this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So now in this verse, he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to enable you to love. In your own power, trying harder. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to love my boss. I'm going to do it, even though he's a jerk. She's a jerk. I'm loving him right now. Like in your own power, that's really, really hard. It's really, really hard, which is why God gives us the spirit to live inside of us, okay? And so it's not about trying harder. It's about learning to live moment by moment under the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit who indwells disciples. This is why Jesus was able to say, I do what my father wants because he was living moment by moment under the direction of God's spirit. Paul continues on in verse 17 and he says this, the sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two, get this, forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. So Paul is saying that when you become a disciple in this book, in the book of Galatians, he's saying when you become a disciple, you're forgiven and freed from the power of sin. And you're given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. But once the Holy Spirit gets inside of you, guess what? Fireworks! Fireworks on the inside! Because there's going to be the Spirit that's telling you things like God said to Jesus in Matthew 4, this is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I well pleased. And then there's going to be another force, another power in you, and that's the force and power of shame that comes that's part of our sinful, broken nature. And it's going to be saying, you're not good enough. Who do you think you are? You're not good enough. You're never going to amount. Like, and so these two forces are at work on the inside of us all the time, which is why several weeks ago I asked you to hash mark the number of times that shame was speaking to you because my gut tells me shame says more to you than Jesus does in any given day or any given week. So it's flesh versus spirit. And again, this isn't some kind of material versus non-material thing. This is a uh, battle between two powers. Which power is going to fuel and direct your life? Your sinful nature or the Holy Spirit? Have you ever noticed how it's sometimes hard to kick a habit? Have you ever noticed how it's sometimes hard to read your Bible? There are these forces at work in you, right? It's more than just your willpower, okay? So then Paul continues in verse 18, and he says this, but when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you're directed by the Spirit, you don't have to worry about rules or commands or regulations. Why? Because perfected love fulfills the law. Loving your neighbor, you're living like Jesus. 
Paul tells these Christians in the book of Galatians that they are the true children of God, that they're indwelt by God's spirit, that they have no need for the Jewish law, and that they're free to really love, which is why it's very important that he says what he says in chapter five, verse one. Make sure you stay free. Again, we were not created to be handed over to slavery, slavery to another person, slavery to a set of behaviors, slavery even to our own choices. Slavery is not the Jesus way. Now, some of you have been in church a long time might say, well, Max, Paul refers to himself as a slave to Jesus. Paul himself uses the language of slavery. He does. He says, I am a doulos of Jesu Christu. But in Paul's mind, in Paul's way of thinking, if you become a slave to Jesus, that frees you. That's what sets you free. That's what enables you to be truly human. That's what enables you to truly love God and other people. When you become a slave to your sinful nature, that's what results in condemnation and guilt and all of this other thing that leads to death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. So Paul is very much aware. And so that's one of the paradoxes, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but Christianity is full of paradoxes. The way up is down. The way to live is to die. And another one of those paradoxes is the way to be truly free is to become a slave to Jesus. Okay? So here's what I want you to know for those of you that maybe have an addictive behavior or an addiction going on in your life. If you're struggling with any kind of addiction, you're going to feel a strong sense of shame. You're going to feel it because there's this thing that controls you. You're going to feel it because there's going to be these voices in your head that tell you all the time, see, you're not strong enough to beat this. You don't have what it takes to kick this to the curb. You're such a loser. And these voices are going to be going on and on on the inside of your brain, okay? Even though once you become addicted, literally and medically what's going on is you have a brain disease, right? So whether or not you're addicted to something, I want to kind of peel the curtain away one last time about how shame works on the inside of us. And the best way I know to, to describe that is to tell you that you have inside of you an evil Alexa. <laughs> you have on the inside of you <laughs> an evil Alexa. Now, Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, he calls it a shame attendant. He says every single person has this assistant on the inside. And what this assistant does, what this evil Alexa does, is that all throughout the day, on and on, it gives you verbal and nonverbal elements of judgment and condemnation all throughout the day, in every moment of your life. So let me explain how this works. And I'm going to take an imaginary couple that are married, Gary and Susan, because we don't have any Garys or any Susans in the congregation. Whew, okay. So Gary and Susan are married. They love each other. They're doing the American thing. They each have a job. They've got kids. And Gary in the morning gets his stuff together and he gets in the car and he's running a few minutes late. And as he pulls out of the driveway, shame says to Gary, you know that difficult client you're going to talk to later this afternoon? That's going to blow up in your face, buddy. You are so not prepared for this. 
So on he goes to work. Gary's now feeling a little deflated and demoralized. He shows up. At some point later in the morning, Gary's a little bored, so he gets on the interwebs and he looks up vacations at Club Med and he imagines what it would be like to be on a vacation with his wife on a beach. And then Shame speaks to him again and says, you're at a dead-end job. You don't even have that many vacation days. You can't afford that. You're never going to be able to do something like that. (sighs) Deflated again. Later in the afternoon, Gary has to have a sit-down with his manager. Now, his manager also has Shame speaking to her. And what Shame is saying to her is, hey, everybody in your team, there's not a single person on your team who's hit their numbers. Every other group in the company has either hit or exceeded numbers. Who do you think you are to be a manager? You can't manage anything. And so she sits down with Gary. Gary, of course, comes in and Shame has spoken to him and said, man, you didn't hit your numbers. They're probably going to fire you. You're going to be unemployed. It's going to be terrible. (laughs) Loser. (sighs) So then Gary drives home at the end of the day, drives into his driveway. I'm home, honey. Now, Susan has also had a rough day and has had a lot of condemnation and criticism and voices playing in her head. And instead of saying, oh, Gary, I'm so glad to see you. It's wonderful. I'm so glad you're home. I'm so glad I married you. She says instead, Why haven't you fixed the bathroom? You know, you said two weeks ago that you were going to fix this and the kids have been in our bathroom and now their junk is all over everything. What Gary hears in that moment because shame is speaking to him is, yeah, Gary, mechanical moron, that's what you are. You didn't even take the time to get onto YouTube to see how it could be done. You can't fix anything. You know, if Susan had married your buddy, everything in her house would work. Now, here's what's, gonna, here's what's not going to happen that night. You know what's not going to happen for Gary and Susan? Sex. <laughs> Do you want to know why? It takes vulnerability and intimacy for sex to work right. And when you're condemned and when you're deflated, it takes sex right off the table. Do you see how this works? So we have this evil Alexa inside of us that is speaking to us on a regular basis in sabotaging our relationship with God, who do you think you are? Sabotaging our relationships with our wives and our husbands and our children and our friends and our neighbors. Because shame, again, says to us, you are not enough. So let me ask a question or two. Are there any substances or behaviors in your life that your body is uber convinced that you need to survive? Is it possible that you're addicted to something? And then secondly, how often is your evil Alexa speaking to you? (laughs) Right? How often is your evil Alexa speaking to you? In, In light of Paul's plea that we remain free I want to give some practical advice. The first and foremost, whether it's shame or whether it's addiction, really whether it's anything, there's a reason they say confession is good for the soul. Confess, especially if you are struggling with an addiction to something. When you bring addictive behaviors into the light, that's what begins to break the power of darkness. Confession. 
And here's the thing. We cannot earn love's God or God's love or forgiveness. We don't earn God's love or forgiveness. And God's love and forgiveness is not dependent upon the worthiness of our choices. Sometimes we'll make a series of really bad choices and we'll have this belief about God. Well, since I did this, this, and this, therefore, God cannot love me or forgive me. No, all it takes is a repentant heart. Yes, God's forgiveness is not based on your choices. It's based on the completed work of Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're addicted? Well, let me, here's some questions I got from a therapist friend of mine. Do you use more of the substance or engage in the behavior more often in the past? That was me and coffee. It went, it just kept going up and up and up. Do you have withdrawal symptoms when you don't have the substance or engage in the behavior? And then lastly, have you ever lied to anyone about your use of the substance or the extent of your behavior? Okay, those are some good questions to know. Am I addicted to something? Number two, this comes from our friends in the military. Embrace the suck. If you have any kind of addiction and you, take, you confess and you begin to take steps to get some freedom, do you know what's gonna happen? It's gonna be hard. There's gonna be withdrawal and you're gonna take one step forward and two steps back and three steps forward and two steps back and it's gonna be messy and hard. Did I mention hard? <laughs> okay, so embrace the suck. That's part of it. That's what the, our friends in the military say, okay? It's gonna take some effort, yes. And lastly, it's gonna take others. If you, wanna, if you wanna tame shame in your life, the way that you tame shame is by leaning in. It's by community. It's by being known and knowing other people. What you're afraid of is if that somebody knows you and the dark parts of yourself, that they'll reject you. But with God, see, does God know everything about us? And yet, he loves, he forgives, right? And so, here's the thing, lean in. There's a reason that 12, steps, 12 step groups are powerful. Hi, I'm Max, and I'm a coffee addict. Hi, Max. And in that moment, in that circle, I find out that every other one of them struggles the same way I do. And I learn I'm not alone. And the other thing that I learn is that those people want me to be free, just like they want to be free themselves, okay? So lean in, lean in. Why, why this series on shame? I'm convinced, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in Christianity. I went to church three times a week, every week. I mean, I, we did Bible studies and the book of Revelation like five times. And like, I mean, I could quote scripture in the King James and I don't remember anything ever on shame. I remember feeling ashamed. I remember the experience of shame, but no one ever talked about it. And so I wanted to shine a spotlight and I wanted to make, you know, highlight what it is and what it's doing inside of our souls. Here's my, here's my belief about shame in Americans. Shame is telling Americans who we are and we're believing it. Shame is throttling our potential. Shame is creating distance in our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And shame is keeping us from all that God has for us because we believe you are not good enough and who do you think you are rather than the voice of the good shepherd. 
Scripture tells us some very powerful things. And again, Jesus did not come to leave us enslaved, addicted, or ashamed. Shame pronounces us guilty and deficient. Jesus pronounces us guiltless and promises that he is enough for all of our weakness. In, in Luke chapter uh, 4, let's see if I got this on. I want to go to the, my next picture. I should have some more on there. Maybe I don't. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus unfurls the scroll and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And then in John chapter 8, we're told this, So if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. If the Son sets you free, you are truly free. I want the same thing for me and for you that Paul wanted for his brothers and sisters in Galatia. I want you to be free. 